Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. It is September 5th, 2018. This is episode number 106 of the EdTech Situation Room. My name is Jason Eifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, Dr. West Fryer, hopefully not having to build an ark in your location to stay away from the floods that are located in the Midwest. How are you this evening, sir? I am doing great. And yes, it is a very unusual week. I feel like we've gone to the Pacific Northwest with cloudy skies and rain in our forecast every single day. So anyway, it is uh, not 100 degrees and that's nice because sometimes the August weather, you know, gets prolonged here. So yeah, and you are without sm uh, smoke from California fires. Is that what I understand? That is absolutely correct. We've had great uh, uh, great weather here for uh, almost three weeks now. The winds have been blowing in the correct directions. And so Missoula weather is delightful. In fact, I had an opportunity last night for the first time. Um, Missoula has an extraordinary music scene. We have at least five venues now that, that pull in some pretty decent acts, but the um, 80s uh, phenomenon Blondie was in town last night. And if, I know it was my first opportunity to go to the so-called Kettle House Amphitheater, which is a wonderful new venue located just outside of Missoula in Bonner, Montana. And uh, I, I went because, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s and I want to see Blondie. And by the way, at uh, 73 years old, Debbie Harry still has got it. She's dancing all around the stage and was was pumping out tunes. It was pretty, pretty great. Good mix of old and new stuff. But the Kettle House Amphitheater was also unreal. It was just a beautiful venue. It's right on the river. Um, beautiful mountains in the background. Really well thought out venue. And uh, unlike one year ago this week where Montana was covering a very thick blanket of smoke it was basically smoke free the entire night so uh, we're feeling very lucky here in in western montana to not have uh, any of the smoke from the wildfires which means we don't have anything locally so all good here in zootown clearly the cultural level of the, the podcast has just gone up my wife commented after last week she's like you know does anyone listen to that and like you know half of what we say she's really not quite sure about so anyway <laughs> We, so I was like, okay, maybe we should, yeah, jump to, or where's my, and I talked to my mother this weekend. We, we went home. <laughs> so I was like, she, she had started listening and there was just a lot of banter. So perhaps we should cut to the chase even faster to let the first time listeners know that, yes, we are going to talk technology news here, you know, but we, we do tend to start with weather and other, you know, small little chit chat. Right. Wes and I are friends. So that's that's the bottom line. You're going to have to have us, you know, catch up on the week with us. So yeah. if you want to join us for our little weekly get together, that's great. Right. Yeah. Well, the coffee's on us. So, well, Wes, lots of interesting things going on. I think I'm going to I intend intended on going something a little different first, but I, I think we should do this first because it's kind of nostalgic for me. Um, two big anniversaries this week. Um, one's a little more practical than the other, but Google, like the search engine, Google turns 20 this week, would start out as a uh, graduate student project at Stanford, became, you know, Google, which is obviously uh, uh, one of the world's most important companies. And I was actually thinking about this uh, when I spotted this uh, retrospective on The Verge, and I would suggest uh, for those of you that are not aware of, of, of the history or maybe uh, want to see kind of the, the retrospective of 20 years of Google, The Verge has a wonderful article in today's edition. The link, of course, is our website, edtechsr.com. But 
I actually was thinking about when I started using Google, and I, I actually remember this uh, pretty well. Um, in the late 1990s, I was a teacher in the Helena School District, which is where I started my career and, and taught most of the years of my career. And I was becoming a fairly popular professional development presenter inside my school district where I would do three-hour workshops. And uh, most of the stuff I was doing pretty early on was ridiculous but popular, um, the 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 title that that actually some of my friends still make fun of but um you know i could get butts and seats what's called jason minds the web it's like random stuff that i ran into on the internet and here it is yay the internet but um i've been using uh um meta they're like meta search meta no meta crawler was the name of the search engine which was yes. you know, the, the geeks search engine right because meta crawler searched all the search engines so if you were a, a, a web crawler fan or you were a dog pile fan or you were any of the uh, popular search engines back in the day meta crawler crawled them all and then you meta could crawler. I know it's and think of the name sounds silly now, right? Um, and and you know I would teach about you know search engine strategy and you know the importance of safety in search and be careful with kids. And I had a friend who actually now is in the upper management of of PayPal and then was working at Intel in Hillsboro, Oregon, who you know I was in pretty close contact with and. He had said, have you heard of Google? And I, like, <laughs> like the name was silly, kind of weird. And, you know, the early days, it was distinctive because Google was a search engine that was basically the name of the search engine in a box, not unlike it is today. And that was something that was extraordinary for 1998. Um, every single search engine, every single um, uh, meta site that, that tried to catalog the web, like Yahoo, it was an advertising nightmare. It was... Uh, uh, cluttered, it, it had kind of a uh, overly designed um, newspaper feel to it, and Google was awesome because it was super simplistic, and the advertising that eventually made it on Google was just tiny little ads that were not pop-ups, they did not flash or blink or, you know, cause uh, 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 people to go into convulsions, like it was just a really simple interface, and it didn't take long for the nerd set, including myself, to figure out that Google was seemed more accurate because they had a logarithm behind what they were doing that felt you know felt smarter and felt less uh, maybe artificial and it seemed really you know just uh, authentic and fast and so that was you know the start of Google for me. So Wes, when did you start using Google? Hmm. Well, I was uh, being a technology teacher and facilitator at Rush Elementary School in Lubbock, Texas. And I was um, basically teaching fourth, fifth, and sixth graders half of the day and then integrating with teachers. And we were using Yahoo. And I remember, you know, that was when we, the, the web was being curated by hand. And so we had the, what was, what was that called when you had the, the topical, there's, there's, a, there's some fancy words for that, you know, as far as the categories and the hierarchies, the hierarchical web, there's other words for that. But, oh, gosh. I, I rem you know, my friend Tim Kane, who graduated a couple years ahead of me um, at the Air Force Academy, uh, was I was communicating with him for some reason, and he had asked me kind of a similar thing about Google, and I'm like, what is that? And then you know, discover this world. But you know, we were still into Yahoo, and I will admit, in that same era, this just makes me cringe. We're doing so much with student email and safety. I actually helped my students create their own Yahoo accounts at yeah. that time, <laughs> which, you know, was not 
with hindsight, a real safe thing, but those were the early, early days yep. of the web. So, yeah. And that's when Alan November was teaching everybody how to use Alta Vista and do, you know, advanced Boolean searching. Right. right, and, right, right, right. Uh, I think, I mean, or that time that was shortly thereafter. So yeah, lots of, uh, Lots of companies that have come and gone, and and here we are, twenty years later, as we'll talk about in the show. You know, contemplating whether whether Google's too big, you know, and whether whether Google and Facebook and these other companies are are going to face antitrust legislation, and, and just how massive they are, and you know, where if if they're not going to be stopped by any kind of governmental regulation, you know, they're going to kind of swallow the world. I mean, they're not not just one company, but um, but I'm right. I say that. Very happy to have drank the Google Kool-Aid. Very, you know, thankful to be using their tools on a daily basis and definitely thinking that, you know, the world is a better place because of what Sergi and Larry created in their dorm and, you know, what's grown as a result. But it certainly spiraled beyond anybody's expectation 20 years ago. Well, and I can say that with, with few exceptions, when I've adopted a Google tool, it usually replaced something that was much worse than the Google tool, right? And I can think of examples of that. The rollout uh, in, I think, of 2003 and 2004 was the rollout of Gmail. Um, for those of you that, that don't remember that or were on the bandwagon much later, the, the tool was extremely popular because of its very simplistic design and the fact that they didn't cram advertising down your throat to, to send and receive email. It was so popular with especially the tech set in the United States that they had an invite system where you could get an email or a Gmail address and then you can invite five others who could invite five others. And then over time, you got more invites and eventually became a, a website you could just go sign up on. But the reason why they were popular is because they were the first to give. And I, th- I want to say it was a gigabyte of space or something. Um, you know, they just weren't afraid to, um, you know, to allow you to store all your email. Whereas if you were on some of the older uh, web-based services or you rolled your own email, which is what I did for um, uh, a number of years, I used to have... Uh, um, uh, uh, email at nifer.com where I host on a website uh, and I had hosting for that email and the, the joke was that um, with students is I would I would uh, tell them my email address was anything at nifer.com because I had set up to where I had a blanket e- email box and so my kids would get kind of creative about what the anything was and half of them just emailed the word any anything at nifer.com right but you know that that was great but not very secure uh in retrospect and then more importantly the tools to manage that were terrible oh, and the spam became un- you know unmanageable yeah yeah and so you know for me gmail was a real revelation i've had the same gmail account since 2004 i haven't had to change email accounts and i have the same one i did from day one and that's that's been pretty great and i i've, I've very much enjoyed that the other anniversary is the Chrome browser, and so we've got uh, Tom Warren's article from The Verge. Google's Chrome browser is now 10 years old, and so he's noting that you know Chrome on the desktop now boasts a 60% browser market share. I mean, think about where we were, um, you know, 20 years ago. Apple on the ropes. Microsoft, you know, making the investment to try to help save Apple. Um, you know, Internet Explorer uh, in in the emerging internet. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, that, I guess we weren't using Internet Explorer quite that early, were we? Or maybe we were. Um, certainly by, uh, what, 2000, if we, if, if we go, if we go ahead 10 years, I mean, right. Chrome has been a, a revelation. I mean, Firefox and definitely open source and, you know, there's, there's roots there with Netscape. Um, right. Netscape but, Navigator. Yep. Yep. But well, I was, you know, just look at the timeline. 
And it was 2002 when Firefox was released, and Firefox, I, and I believe, was uh, resurrected from the ashes of the Netscape Navigator. I think they're related in some way, shape, or form. And then Internet Explorer obviously became very popular, but um, you know, when Chrome was released in 2008, it was a really welcome alternative to Internet Explorer, and to a lesser extent, Firefox, although a lot of people still stay with Firefox today, and I have to say, Firefox has gained new respect um, uh, on uh, on my icon bar because it's fast. I mean, it, it's, I would say it's equally fast to Chrome, and depending on which website you're talking about, it probably goes back and forth, but, you know, the simplicity of it, the fact that they were move, or, you know, trying to move away from toolbars, which was a very popular way to add functionality to a browser in 2004, 5, and 6, but they were super spammy and oftentimes had spyware installed on them, and the simplicity of the Chrome browser, you know, for me, was a real revelation as an end user. Absolutely, and from a security standpoint, you know, not only the Chrome browser, but the the Chrome OS, as far as Chromebooks, which, you know, have have come as a result. This article in The Verge, you know, says that Chrome is sort of risking or on the ver- on the edge of, of becoming the new Internet Explorer 6 uh, because of its dominance. But, you know, the emphasis on web standards, uh, we're now seeing Google with the works best with Chrome, you know, messaging and, and even at school. I mean, we we put Firefox and Chrome on everybody's machine, whether it's a, a Windows or, or a Mac computer. Uh, but we definitely encourage folks because we we use and, and do so much with Google to, you know, go ahead and use Chrome. So. Anyway, I think these are great anniversaries to celebrate. I think it's wonderful to see, you know, what Google has done to the computing landscape. And in terms of reinvention, you know, it's it's critical that we continue to push the envelope with security and, and look not only to the web browser, but beyond the browser as far as the operating system. And so the ways Google is iterating in that way, I think, are are super important. It's also pretty amazing to see what Microsoft is doing and the way all of that is is actually moving. So, right. absolutely. But yeah, these are these are celebrations for sure. And then while we're on the topic, uh, one of the things that happened this week is that version sixty nine of the uh, Google Chrome browser was released, and it's the kind of 10th anniversary uh, uh, release of the browser. And it has come with a number of interesting features. I thought we could go over a couple of these for for just a moment. Um, First and foremost, Google's been working on a new design to the Chrome browser, and it's more that goes along with what they call their material design. And this gets a little nerdy, but you've probably noticed in in the last four or five years that the... uh, you know, broad internet has become flatter would be the way to, to, to utilize that, less three-dimensional or perceptual three-dimensional images, less what they call skeuomorphism, which is this notion of trying to recreate the physical in the digital. So things like a design that suggests that something is stitched and it's not because it's, it's a flat flat surface, right? So uh, trying to create a, a perception of three-dimensionality. Uh, but uh, they're pushing out uh, f- you know more material design, and in fact, a couple of weeks ago, you could you know put in some flags in the Chrome browser and get an early preview of that flat design. In fact, I'm looking. I've, I run uh, my home Chrome setup in a in the beta mode, which is now showing off that flat design in the uh, Chrome OS. It's 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 really beautiful. So that's something uh, to look forward to. Um, the other one that's that's interesting and very timely, well, actually there's several of them, interesting and very timely, is that Chrome is now trying to uh, more aggressively manage passwords. And for a while, Chrome was a great option for managing your passwords. The problem with managing your passwords in Chrome, however, was that for the longest time, they were storing those passwords in an unprotected 
um, a, a decrypted text file on your local computer. So if you were using Chrome to manage passwords and someone had physical access to your machine, it wasn't that difficult to steal that file and get all your passwords. Unlikely scenario, perhaps, but still one that's real. And apparently they're working on a really great uh, uh, password manager. And I'm not, uh, you can go to password.google.com and, and, and see more about that. I'm currently a LastPass user, um, so much so that I'm actually paying for the commercial edition of it. It's just $24 a year. But um, but it's interesting that the Chrome is definitely going in this direction. So um, a related article talking about the size of Google and kind of where we've come. Um, we've got under the heading social media correction, which is one of Jason's favorite terms to talk about here on the podcast. And this is from The Verge on September 4th, and it's an editorial called It's Time to Break Up Facebook. And this is a very well-articulated article by uh, Nilay Patel, whose Twitter handle is Reckless. <clears throat> and um, he mainly cites an author named Tim Wu, who has written a book that's going to be out in November called The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. And what he does is paint the case for, you know, why we've had antitrust law in the United States, um, how currently the the only litmus test in terms of antitrust is whether it, it harms consumer costs in terms of pricing and in an age of free products from companies like Facebook and Google, where we are basically the product as far as our data and our information that, that they're able to utilize and remonetize and then sell to advertisers. That really isn't a measure that, you know, can be meaningfully applied. And so what he is calling for is, um, you know, it could it, actually he says you don't have to rewrite trust legislation in order to take a look at what's happened um, with respect to Facebook specifically, because um, this is not a let's break up Google. This is a let's break up Facebook article talking about WhatsApp and Instagram and the way in which they can, you know, Facebook consume those two companies and, and essentially did away with its meaningful competition. So we've talked on the show about this issue in the past and, and certainly in the context of cell phones. Uh, both Jason and I are, are T-Mobile users. Uh, we have been for a number of years and, you know, it's wonderful to see how competition can raise the bar in terms of what kinds of features customer or consumers uh, customers have available to them as well as prices. And so I think this is a, a pretty compelling argument. So Jason, if uh, we were to give you fiat power in the debate round, would you uh, be willing <laughs> to fiat uh, a split off of uh, WhatsApp and Instagram to Facebook? Or do you think we should just allow the market to do as it will and just see where that takes us? Um, so I, I think about this in terms of, of the purchase of Instagram by Facebook, and I think it was a billion-dollar price tag. It was the first uh, acquisition that was uh, – a prominent acquisition was in, in the tech world that was at the B level, right? So billion-dollar acquisition. And obviously that turned out to be an extraordinarily good investment on Facebook's part. Uh, Instagram's uh, popular, uh, popularity is growing. Um, it's a huge marketing platform now, right? And and even though there are other initiatives like Instagram TV has been on a real slow roll, so it, it it's not something that's become a real factor yet. Even though it's clear there that that's that's part of their future strategy, um, it's it, it's it's increasing in users, and as people get tired of the political ugh, in Facebook, the, Instagram's a great place to go, right? And I remember this was four or five years ago at one of those Facebook conferences, F8 or FATE or whatever they call it, the Facebook Developers Conference, that there was some headlines about 
uh, uh, unbundling the big blue app was the, the kind of headline of, of the where Facebook was going. And the notion was that it, they were no longer serving their customers when they had everything kind of wrapped into one big old app. So as an example of this, Facebook Messenger, which uh, used to be something that was integrated into the app itself, right? It was something that, that you, uh, you know, access within Facebook, and they added phone calls, and there was all sorts of functionality in Facebook Messenger that was uh, popular. They decided that those need to become separate apps. So Instagram wouldn't get sucked into it. Uh, Messenger was separated from it. WhatsApp stayed separate from Facebook. And, you know, it's interesting because I know a lot of people now, actually, that are very light Facebook users, but still very regularly use the Messenger app. In fact, my wife is one of them uh, who has, has largely abandoned Facebook now and spends her time uh, focusing um, on Messenger app, which obviously doesn't have the push in content. Um, that's interesting to me in context of this article because I think Facebook has been trying hard not to become like this, you know, all-in-one behemoth that they're uh, a company with lots of different interests and lots of different ways they want to help people connect and, and communicate with one another. Um, I like that analysis that it's hard to apply maybe our you know, historical notions of what a monopoly is, what a company that's grown too large or has too much control is because, you know, there's just, there, there's no way to even conceptualize Facebook tampering with elections, you know, during the progressive era of American history, right? Like it just, there's no way to even dream about that then. Um, it's an interesting notion. I, in the same way that there's been a lot uh, talk this week on uh, Capitol Hill in Washington, the Supreme Court nomination uh, uh, hearings have kind of drowned out the other stuff that's been going on. But there have been hearings this week. I think Sheryl Sandberg was on Capitol Hill. Um, the Twitter guy, Jack Dorsey, was on Capitol Hill this week testifying. And there's been very uh, aggressive language on the behalf of, of senators and representatives that now is the time to regulate these technologies. And I don't, I'm not against regulation, right? Like I don't, I don't uh, 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 shudder at the notion of that. I think like some people that are, are tend to be rather pro-business uh, are, but I just don't know how you do it, right? Like at what point are you really becoming, when the government does it, when are you then trampling on free speech? Well, what Patel is saying here, and that, I think, yeah, that what's happening in Washington is pretty significant. Um, Google had, did not send, you know, its, yeah. its CEO or any of its founders. They were sending one of their top legal, you know, people. And I heard, I think they were putting like an empty chair with a Google fit nameplate or something like that <laughs> in one of the hearings. Um, there's a lot of posturing, obviously, that's going on politically. Um, but you know, this idea of what's the, what's the harm? You know, when would something become too big? When would we ever decide that? And that it's, it shouldn't just be about price. It can also be about competition, you know? And so when you see these companies, um, eradicating competition, um, you know, I, I think it, it's important for us to consider, right? I mean, Amazon is, is on a trajectory to just continue kind of gobbling up the world. I know that we had a lot of the skies falling with Walmart. You know, but Walmart's a player there too, right? I mean, this is part of the dynamics. And I think um, these can be called network effects as far as once you get to a certain point, network effects set in. And then, you know, you're, you just, I mean, you can obviously screw up um, and there's no, you know, ma you know, guarantee that, that all this is just going to, you know, keep on getting bigger and bigger. But that is, that is the tendency for these companies. And so. I think this is a this is a great article to take a look at, and it's it's really a great one from an economic standpoint, 
to look at as well in terms of, of the law and, and antitrust and thinking about harm and then thinking about competition, you know, and, and what kind of a, of a society do we want to have here in the United States? We, we have tended to be a very hands off, you know, regulation, uh, is evil sort of, you know, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, bureaucracy bad. Uh, we've kind of taken that in. And of course that's also related to what is happening with the Supreme court. Uh, you know, I think, to a much greater degree with the polarization and fracturization of society, uh, both parties, uh, all parties see the, you know, extreme importance of the folks sitting on the bench and the way in which they interpret the law and the way in which they, they stay there for a real long time to have a long influence, you know, right. on, the, on the course of how our, our legal system works and how laws are interpreted and, and how values are represented within society. So anyway, it's going to be interesting because I, I, uh, I know there's just going to continue to be a lot of posturing. We've heard a lot, you know, recently as far as the, the steps that Facebook and Twitter um, are taking to try to crack down on, you know, fake accounts. Um, but I also think we should just realistically brace ourselves for, you know, uh, more headlines that are going to be about voting machines that are going to be, um, you know, about the ways in which we've influenced folks. Because as we've talked about on the show before, when it comes to this idea of fake news and information, a lot of that has to do with identifying bad actors, and, and that does have to do with free speech. So the regulations you know, can go a couple different ways, and part of that can try to push these companies to uh, censor and regulate uh, more the kinds of expression that happens on their platforms. Um, but I think in this article, talking about just the economics of it and how Europe approaches this differently from the United States in terms of what the harm is you know, and looking at competitiveness – Right. Um, so this would definitely be something uh, very timely, you know, to talk to talk with your students about if you're doing anything related to economics or te teaching economics. Um, and it will be most interesting to see what kind of legislation is actually proposed. There's a lot of posturing that happens and sound bites that get made and, you know, empty chairs with Google's name tag, I guess, are being right, right. You know, put out there to make a, to have effect. But, you know, what what would the legislation, if any, be? Um, and, it, you know, is there is this administration or any administration at this point willing to, um, you know, say that say that you you've become too big, um, you, you know, you can't have that acquisition, uh, you know, when when consumer prices are going to basically be be fine because these you know, products are being given away. Right. Well, and the other piece to remember here when we talk about regulations that I'm not very convinced that that many people in Congress understand the Internet. Right. Like uh, they made a big mockery of it when when uh, uh, Zuck was up at the Hill and they asked some pretty silly questions like, how do you guys make money? Right. Like and, you know, it it, it doesn't take a real rocket scientist to figure out what, um, you know, what what runs the Internet is advertising. Right. It's, it's an advertising based medium. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I am worried that a, a poorly thought through regulation or worse, a broad kind of, I guess, dictum from Congress uh, signed in haste to try to deal with this, you know, kind of fake news or social media problem. And, you know, and, and again, not a political show, but it wouldn't it, it, it in a world where we're, we're trying to uh, figure out what the media looks like in 2018, I could see a bill leaving Congress quickly, passing through the, 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 the Oval Office very quickly, and then it you know, being riddled with, with, with First Amendment problems that um, you know, we'd have to spend years dealing with in court. So I'm not, I mean, that's what also terrifies me about regulation too, right? Like regulation, um, uh, uh, the number of times we've tried to deal with, with what 
are perceived to be really important problems like piracy, um, oftentimes the rules that deal with things like piracy are way worse, at least from a, a First Amendment or a privacy or a functionality standpoint, than losing X amount of percentage of, 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 of media dollars because of piracy. So it's a real careful balance issue. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is done in the name of schools, too. Let's not forget that oftentimes we've created very draconian laws that demand that we lock down things uh, maybe with too uh, uh, thick of a club, right, where... You know, uh, there's there's clearly a need for schools to step in and protect students, but uh, what does that mean, right? Or if we go too far, does it then take away from the power of the technologies? Any other social media correction articles you want to talk about there? Uh, yeah, there was one other that, uh, going back to that screen, oh, really excellent information from Pew Internet Research Life. This is uh, from their fact tank a blog, this is from today, and extraordinary numbers, by the way, they didn't use the term here, but this is the uh, trademark technology correction at work. Uh, this is uh, from today's Pew um, uh, Research Center, and they say that, uh, quoting Pew directly, just half of all Facebook users, 18 or older, say they've adjusted their privacy settings in the past 12 months. Um, four in 10 say that they've taken a break from checking the platform from a period of several weeks or more, while a quarter say they've deleted the Facebook app from their cell phone. All told, 74% of Facebook users say they've taken at least one of these three actions in the past year. And that was based on a survey of adults in late May, early June. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that's an extraordinary thing, right? We started reporting earlier this year after a lot of that uh, Cambridge Analytica stuff came out um, in, in 2017, early 2018, that the overall, well, for the first time, Facebook was losing uh, average numbers of active minutes by its users. Uh, that trend continued throughout 2018, and now 74% of American adults say they've changed their relationship with the platform. So technology correction is most certainly happening. And Wes, did you take any of those three specific actions? I definitely did in terms of uh, deleting supposedly, you know, things that I had liked and indicated once you've put them into the cloud, you know, can you really ever take them back? But I definitely changed some of my privacy settings. And last month when I celebrated my birthday, one of the things which I hadn't really realized this would happen, you know, is I, I changed privacy settings to not allow people to directly post on my on my wall, which, you know, it's it is. There are some wonderful things uh, for sure. I mean, we're, we're definitely a pro, you know, sharing and the positive uses of social media, um, you know, show and advocates here, I think. But anyway, um, I hadn't realized that until later in the day. And, you know, it resulted in more direct messages and then things that just people would post on their wall and they had tagged me and whatever. But um, I did. And, you know, I'm not I'm not going to delete my account. I'm certainly not deleting my Twitter account. Um, but I have, you know, changed the way that I'm using the, the platform and feel like I'm, you know, more aware of the ways in which I'm being marketed to. And I think there are some benefits to that, right? I don't want to just, when, when you watch mainstream news and I watch probably more commercials with my family, just being up with my parents because they're watching more TV, you know, and just the whole pray, you know, what is it? Uh, spray and pray, you know, kinds of advertising or when you're watching, you know, CBS Sunday morning, you're like, I think they're targeting an older demographic here with the kinds of medical, you know, advertisements they're doing. I mean, there is probably some value to not seeing, you know, advertisements that are just completely irrelevant and not, and not of interest um, to us. But 
anyway. And, and I, I think the harm there, um, you know, is certainly less than it is as a society when we look at democracy and, and right. you know, swaying people's, um, you know, votes and, and opinions and things like that. I think the, the privacy harm of being directly marketed to and, and feeling creeped out because you're like, how did they know that? You know, are they listening? You know, is this app listening to me to tell, know, know that I'm going to want that? Um, that's, I think, at a different scale than some of the things we're seeing in terms of, of society and, and democracy, things like that. Sure. Okay, where should we go to next, sir? Well, let's talk a little bit of Apple really quick. So I put yes. this under Apple Leaks and Rumor Mill. Uh, 9 to 5 Mac <laughs> evidently got some exclusive access to some leaked photos and information about the forthcoming um, iPhones as well as Apple Watch. We know that there's going to be an Apple event coming up on September 12th, and apparently Apple is going to release both 5.8 and 6.5-inch OLED phones that they're going to call the iPhone XS, and they're also expected to unveil the new Apple Watch Series 4. You know, I've been holding out, uh, among other things, for FaceTime and video conferencing. I think I'll, I'll definitely be challenged uh, you know, if I can, if I can do the true Dick Tracy, you know, talking to folks on my, on my uh, wrist kind of thing. But, uh, this also just kind of shows how it's so hard, as, as you mentioned before the show, Jason, with the global supply chain to keep a secret because the new Google Pixel 3, you know, there was a whole bunch of them that have shown up in the Ukraine and, and some other places. Um, so, Jason, how many hours a day are you now spending, you know, lusting for the new Apple products that are coming <laughs> in a few short weeks? Yeah, I, I, well, I'll tell you, the one thing, one thing that gives me any temptation at all to look at an iPhone is the fact that um, I am now wearing, um, I'm a diabetic, and I wear a constant blood sugar monitor. It's a new thing for me the last four weeks or so, and it's, it's pretty interesting technology. But the thing that I uh, did not expect when I bought this item and, and had to invest into it, it was only partially covered um, by by my insurance plan, was that I, I assumed that, that it would be connected to my cell phone. But as it turns out, um, it's fully compatible with iPhones. It is partially compatible with some Android phones. And so um, I am not particularly happy about that situation. And um, that's the only temptation. But two things. First, I, I think I've said this three times now. If it's truly the the iPhone XS, that is the dumbest name ever. It just does not roll off the tongue. It you know the iPhone XS like it just you, your tongue gets in the way. It creates a weird lisp situation. It 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 is uh, not a natural uh, uh, term, and I do not think that's the name. Only if or only because the marketing people at Apple have to know better than that. Um, the other thing about that is, is that I, I will be curious when, and they, they've booked a space for this, right? Is this next week? Do I understand well, that correctly? Yeah, they have it in their house, right? They don't have to book a space now because they've got, they've got the... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The know, spaceship campus thing. Spaceship, yeah, to have. Um, so. Like, I... Um, I, I am curious to see, like, how they, like, they, they did the weird thing with the iPhone 8 and then the uh, the, t the X or 10 um, phone. They're going to have to, and obviously they're just going to pretend that 9 never happened, so uh, they'll go with the X branding, I guess. But, you know, I've heard three phones. I've heard some other rumor sites that claim that there's evidence for more than that, even though there's been, you know, leaks that say only three 
Like I'll, I'll be, I, I am curious to find out, you know, what that, what that looks like. So, and it looks like they're maybe coming out with some less expensive phones. So if the OLED phones are still there, you know, Apple made more money than ever selling a thousand dollar smartphone and really yeah. shifting the whole market, you know, to more expensive phones. Um, but you know, there, there, uh, evidently are some good rumors that they're going, they're going to have a less expensive phone that's not going to opt for, you know, all of the, the super fancy of what was in the, the iPhone 10. So yeah, it'll, it'll be exciting. And, um, I would definitely commend Swappa to you. Uh, hopefully I think we're going to, we're going to sell some phones on Swappa here. Uh, we need, you know, obviously the sooner you do it, the better when the, I guess when the new phones come out, cause I'm, I'm right. sure there, somebody's done a graph, you know, showing as soon as that Apple event happens, you know, what, what's happening to those next models. But, um, you know, the good news is there's, just like with with Android, there's a heck of a lot of capability you can get in in last year or two years uh, old model, and uh, at least Apple's iOS is going to probably still be be functional there. Um, you know, it's not like you're going to have to get the latest and the greatest to get the best, um, exp- you know, I, the, the best software experience. So. Right, absolutely. And you know, the piece that I, you know, that ignoring phones, um, I am interested in. There's apparently forthcoming new. Um, uh, MacBook Airs, that's interesting to me. I'll keep an eye on that. And then, you know, I do feel like that there's this vague uh, energy around maybe something something new from Apple from a, a either laptop or desktop standpoint. So I hope that's the case. Definitely. Um, I'd like to do a couple quick ones on the privacy surveillance. Uh, this is an absolutely fantastic article. This is the New York Times on August 31st. The title is Hacking a Prince, an Emir, and a Journalist to Impress a Client. And this is talking about companies that are creating um, spyware, and they're not just using it so that, you know, teenagers can jailbreak their phones and install Cedia and some new wallpapers. Um, They're selling this to governments, and they're claiming, you know, this is being sold only to, you know, crack down on terrorists and criminals. But as you might expect, um, different companies are using this to crack down on their political rivals, uh, using it in times of elections to, you know, uh, you know, spy on on their competitors. That's something that um, I think has happened in Mexico, cracking down on human rights defenders. Um, so there's lawsuits now that Mexican journalists and human rights defenders um, have filed against um, this company. And so one of the, the biggest um, arguments here in questions in the article is, should companies that manufacture and sell smartphone spyware be held liable for its illegal use by governments? And um, this is this is pretty interesting. I mean, it, it it's different, but, you know, it kind of makes you think a little bit about, say, assault rifles. You know, I mean, if you're if you're selling a fully automatic, you know, assault rifle and you're putting that on the market, you know, at some level there, I think it's, I think it makes sense that there's some kind of liability there and that there, there should be some kind of limitation in terms of, of the sale and distribution of that kind of a weapon. And we're talking about weapons here. It's just a weapon that's software, but it's, it's being able to, you know, target, uh, political rivals and, 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 you know, those sometimes are domestic and sometimes they're international. So I just found that fascinating. And then a related article, uh, from The Verge on September 3rd notes that the U.S., the U.K., and other governments are asking tech companies to build backdoors into encrypted devices. And this is a continuing refrain that we hear from security 
um, you know, advocates. And in this case, it is a memo that came out um, at a meeting that's called the Five Eyes Pact. It's an intelligence sharing agreement between the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And in the memo, the government stressed that these back doors would only be for, quote, lawful access to a device such as a criminal investigation. And they plan to start by encouraging tech companies to voluntarily add them, but the back doors would only be voluntary to a point because the government say they might mandate a way in which they continue to, if they continue to encounter impediments to accessing encrypted data. So I think I know the answer to this, Jason, but where do you stand on the issue of encryption? And do you think that companies uh, like those that are building this spyware should face some liability for their illegal use, even when it's by a government? Um, I do. And I think that, uh, I mean, I'm generally a company, uh, you know, is, should be held liable in cases where their tools are used for, um, you know, for misfortune, um, aggressive misfortune. But at the same time, um, you know, like in a lot of cases, the intent here was 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 quite negative when when these tools are used and they're used for for aggressive nefarious nefarious purposes without any like you know um, redeeming value to them. And yeah, I do. And I, you know, like I um, I I won't go into a lot of detail because it would be a long story. But uh, uh, I've been helping some people lately in context of both work and home. Try to you know un. Uh, ungum up their machines because things have been installed on them, plugins in, in Chrome, plugins in Firefox, um, malware installs with handy applications. And to be clear, I get stuck by that sometimes too, right? I usually can root it out right away because I recognize the telltale signs of the doom, but uh, there, you know, there is a lot of really junky stuff out there whose entire intent is either to serve you advertising or, or, or um, uh, you take take your data away, right? And I th- do you think we need to set up some basic norms uh, about what we expect out of things like software and hardware and then enforce companies that can't play within those social rules? So, yes, absolutely. I think uh, there should be a much more scrutiny of, of uh, companies in, in this regard. Related to uh, the idea of regulation and what government should do, there's a really interesting article um, that comes from the Wikimedia Policy Medium account, and the author is the chair of the Wikimedia Foundation, Maria Sefadari Uichi. I'm not going to say her name right. Um, but her article is called Your Internet is Under Threat. Here's Why You Should Care About European Copyright Reform. So very interesting about what's going on, right? We've got the um, the GDPR that's now in, enforced by Europe that is supposed to be causing companies to be more forthright in their statements about the ways in which data is going to be used, but also potentially impacting, you know, where that data is housed. And that is a fundamental challenge to the internet and the way it's been organized and the way it's, it's worked in terms of saying, you know, you can access my server wherever it happens to be. And this is talking about copyright laws, which might be requiring companies to, you know, take certain information down. This is really over on the freedom of speech side of these discussions and so from the, the perspective of, of Wikipedia and the Wikimedia Foundation, you know, looking at trying to uh, make the world's encyclopedia, the best encyclopedia in the world, you know, free and comprehensive and, you know, having, you know, open licenses, um, this could really impose a lot of burdens, you know, on everyone. And it, and it could put some folks out of, uh, out of operation. So, 
yeah, the way that, that all of this evolves in the next few months and years is, you know, potentially going to be a, a pretty big deal as far as how the Internet is allowed to grow and what people are allowed to do and not do. So um, I, uh, uh, I'm not sure, you know, where to where to place place the bets there. But I think how how is your thinking about the social media correction changed since you initially kind of came up with that term? in terms of where it's going and how regulation plays into it. Sure. I, I, part of it is that I do think that we're becoming numb to it a little bit, right? Like, I, I think the part of the problem with the fact that, that a lot of these apps are built to be a little addicting, I am I actually encouraged, maybe is the right word, by the, the Pew study that we, we talked about a little bit earlier this episode, because I, I, I think that that's a sign that people are seizing more control over their lives in regards to social media. Um, but... I, I guess the, the well, I'll, I'll tell you, here's where my, my, my biggest change has come with that since I started talking about this a year or so ago. Um, I am questioning a little bit some of our use of technology in classrooms. If a student is stuck in a laptop for seven hours a day at school and they go home and their homework is two hours of, of, of laptop time and then their social life is three to four hours of laptop time, and um, uh, and and at least some of that, if not half of that, if not most of that, is mostly passive or very relatively inactive time. Um, that's 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 very challenging to me. I think that that we're we're making some decisions that that maybe aren't um, uh, going in the right direction. Obviously, I don't blame schools for for integrating more technology into the classroom. Other than I think there is a broader conversation that we need to be having here. And the same is also true of me. I mean, I um, very little of my time at work is spent without my eyes in front of a monitor. And, you know, and it's not, and I don't want to make it sound terrible. I like working on a computer. I like my job. I like doing the stuff that I do all day. It's extremely intellectually challenging. It's sometimes, um, uh, you know, a little... Uh, 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 tiring or, or, or stressful or anxiety pr- provoking, but not in a way that, that it's impacting me long term. But, you know, then I come home at night and then I like to read stuff on the internet. I like to, you know, do nerdy things. I like to occasionally game on a computer. Um, and it's really caused me to, to, to question that process. So for me, the social media correction that I do think is a real thing, um, it's, like, I, I just don't know what the end game answer is here, right? It's probably not about, you know, tricks. And I know, Wes, I believe you had posted this week uh, about the YouTube now telling you how much time um, you're spending on that. In fact, I, I immediately looked look, look that information up. And, you know, I do spend a fair amount of time on YouTube. I love YouTube. YouTube is the best. But what do I do with that, you know? Yeah. And that brings it back to the educational focus and thinking about whether, you know, it's a parental focus or, or teacher focus, the conversations we need to have, uh, we all need to be making decisions about the tools that we're using, how we're using them, what we're choosing to share or not share. Um, and I think that um, the, um, the conversations that we're having are healthy ones and, and they need, you know, they, they definitely need to be sustained as far as, as what we're doing with these devices. Uh, as a related side note, um, friend of mine and former coworker who uh, is not at our, our school anymore, but he's now at Tinker Air Force Base. I just talked with him today on the phone. And uh, because he's doing classified work, I mean, he literally has to leave his phone in his car all day when he is at work. And he absolutely cannot do work email at home. And I was like, 
wow, what's that like? You know, it's, <laughs> it's created this separation and buffer. Not that I'm doing a ton of, of work email all the time, but anyway, the, the idea of where, where is there a boundary? And if there's not going to be one drawn, are you going to draw one? You know, how are you going to model that in your organization? How does, how does health and wellness and, uh, my wife and I have used that term digital discipline. You know, how does that, how does that fit in in terms of what you do and <clears throat> how, how much you're, you know, mindlessly scrolling and, uh, you know, how much you're, you know, face to face. So anyway, there's definitely, you know, regulation and things like that to follow. And there's advocacy to do. If, if you've got yes. strong opinions about this, I would encourage you to reach out to your representatives and your senators, uh, and, and share, you know, what, what you think about these things, because, um, you know, thankfully we still do live in a country where constituents are able to speak out and hopefully your uh, elected officials are going to be responsive to your voice and the voices of others. So that, that does matter. But I think the individual choices that we make with these tools, you know, is really important as well. And, uh, we're having healthy conversations about that. And in general, I think, the spotlight, which is being shown on these issues is positive. It also, you know, is a testament to why, why journalism is so important and free and open journalism. We haven't had the article in the show, but, you know, Myanmar has been under this, you know, t uh, tons of, of criticism, uh, because of, um, you know, ethnic cleansing and the United Nations. Uh, had a group that just released a report and the role that evidently Facebook played in fanning the flames of, of ethnic hatred. You know, it's just, you know, it's really important for uh, spotlights to be shown on things. And, you know, there's actually journalists, I think now that have, that have been sentenced to, to, uh, you know, prison time um, based upon social media posts and things like that, that, that right. they were, were reporting. So anyway, freedom of speech, expression, journalism, the fourth estate, um, these things are a bit under siege today politically. And so I think it's uh, important for us to uh, exercise our freedoms and for us also to champion them. And, you know, the demonstration effect of, of us, uh, you know, hopefully being able to seek peaceful political change and, and being able to advocate, you know, for these issues is, is really important because as you said earlier, we should not rely upon the politicians to completely understand all of these dynamics that are happening, you know, uh, with these with these companies and with things like the internet that are, that are technological. So hopefully the legislation and the things like that, that we see are not going to, to do irreparable harm to innovation and to, to sharing and creativity. Um, but on the other hand, I, I would say that hopefully we're not going to completely have a laissez faire hands off approach and, you know, just allow um, an uninterrupted, sort of Pac-Man consumption of, of just continuing to, you know, the big, the bigger can continue to eat the small and, and uh, all competition is, is wiped out. So anyway, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, even beyond the freedom of speech issues, which I think are, are even more problematic, you know, where this goes with respect to size of companies and things like that. And what will Google say, right? Cause you know, certainly right. Google as well as Facebook and Amazon will want to weigh in on that. Okay, well, we're coming near the top of the hour here. Um, I did want to talk about one other quick thing that is kind of a more practical thing. A really great article from our good friends at Chrome Unboxed about how there is a new generation of higher quality Chromebooks uh, that are coming onto market and ultimately approves that the Pixelbook, which, you know, the three generations of high-end uh, 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 Chromebooks released by Google have been mocked pretty aggressively, actually, in, in lots of areas in the media. But um, even though I know a lot of people 
with with Pixel books. I didn't know almost anyone with a Chromebook Pixel, either the 2013 or 2015 model. I know a lot of folks with Pixel books. Um, but the the article talks about that kind of inspiring a middle to higher tier of Chromebooks was Google's goal in releasing the the beautiful Chromebook Pixel. And there are now a series of of pretty decent medium to high end laptops available from various manufacturers ranging from Acer to HP that offer that kind of medium or high-end experience. And I would add a couple caveats to this. And actually, uh, right now at work, I'm in a process of we have a field team uh, of what we call ambassadors that work with uh, the Ed Ready Montana Project, which is one of the, the uh, things we run out of our offices at the University of Montana. And we currently have them out with pretty low-end Dell business uh, laptops. And um, it's just not easy to manage remote laptops with Windows. Just not. It's it's not something that... And I've always been... I got you kind of surprised that Microsoft hasn't come up with an easy way to do this. But the thing that I, I that's been interesting about this is we're starting to run into some plug-in issues occasionally some malware is getting installed by accident and we're going to move totally Chromebooks uh, with that crew and it's going to take some adjustment to workflows and stuff. The reason why I mention this is because the one area that I still think is not, uh, like they're they're coming out with great HD screens, they're coming out with decent uh, chips, some of the higher end Pentium chips and Celeron chips are now becoming uh, fast competitors. More importantly, there's i3, i5, i7, M3, M5, M7 uh, Chromebooks that are released. The one thing that that, they're, that manufacturers are doing a terrible job at, however, is that they still seem pretty stuck at four gigs of RAM. And I get that for, for most users, it's probably not an issue, but for, for anyone that's even approaching power issue, I think eight's gotta be the minimum now. But really interesting that I've noticed that trend as well, and I didn't necessarily associate that with the Pixel Book, but I'm really glad that that's where this seems to be going. Well, that is fascinating uh, to hear you talk about that as far as work. And, you know, I we, we support Windows desktops and laptops, Mac desktops and laptops, and Chrome, as well as iPad. And so as we approach our next refresh season, we're, we're definitely going to be seeing what Apple is going to be hopefully announcing here in a couple weeks. Um, you know, we were tempted last year to take a look at some Chrome devices. And, and I def, I think that the emergence of this higher end Chromebook, because we got to look at return on investment, right? We've had wonderful right. return on investment on our Macs. I mean, I am really, really sad to see these 2012 era MacBooks that, you know, we can replace the battery, we can replace the hard drive, um, you know, swap out keyboards. There's a lot of things that we're able to do in house with these devices. Um, and hey, we've got teachers that still like to play DVDs, you know. Um, so anyway, I know it's the progression of technology, especially as far as the DVD and the optical drives go. But uh, we were tempted last year to look seriously at offering Chrome as an option. And as a, as a technology director at a school, from the security standpoint, you know, from cost, certainly, but also just from the how easily can we support this and can we ensure this is safe? There's really no comparison between a, a full-blown Windows OS or even a Mac OS today and something so light and, you know, re refreshable with a, with a good power wash as a Chromebook. So um, I think we'll also be looking at iPads. I mean, we're doing a lot 
with Seesaw and it's going to be that that's actually where with with Chromebooks and, you know, the world facing cameras and possibly, you know, if it's going to be a, a yoga style convertible laptop or, or even a detachable screen, all of those things are important. Um, interestingly, with our parents, particularly uh, with our youngest kids, uh, there can be a stigma to having your phone out, even if you're taking pictures, let's say for a seesaw portfolio, there's a, there's a stigma with having a phone out, having a larger device like a tablet out, you know, something we're talking about, you know, perhaps that's something we can help educate parents about. Like this isn't just being on Facebook or, or social media, you know, we're using this for an educational purpose. Um, I'm going to be very interested to continue following this, especially with the higher end Chromebooks, because again, that ROI is important and, you know, we, we have a five year cycle. So if we go with a typical cheap end Chromebook and, you know, they're telling us that's going to have a, a shelf life of three years, that's just not going to make it. So it'll be um, important to see what the longevity of these other Chrome devices are. Um, and also related to what we talked about last week, you know, how long is Chrome or is Google going to support the Chrome OS on right. them? Uh, all of those those things are, are really important. So Right, yeah, absolutely. So, Okay, uh, is there anything else we should do before we get to the weekend? I don't think so. I'll go first, and this will be quick. I'm going to just do one. My Geek of the Week is a website called Relive. It is relive.cc, and shout out to Marco Torres. I put a link to his tweet, which actually goes to his Instagram. Um, but this is a very cool geomap tool. And so if you click the example and then click to his Instagram page, you can play the video. Um, he took this really long, like 23-mile bike ride, 24-mile uh, bike ride with his boys. And so you play this. And so it has a really neat satellite view zoom in um, with these place marks. And then where you've taken the photographs, it pops up and then shows you those pictures. So you get to relive your experience, you know, in this case, seeing where they drove uh, along the beach there on the California coast. And uh, just really pretty amazing. So I have not used the tool yet. I just saw this, I think, last night or the night before. But I'm always a fan of GeoMap tools. And so I will be adding that to the Show With Media site on the GeoMap page, which you can find at showwithmedia.com. Great. That's really interesting. I'm going to take a look at that later tonight. And um, I want to remind an old one that's probably from, from pretty early on in, in our run here of the podcast. Um, Cloud Ready is a product from Neverwhere, and it basically takes a computer, a Mac or, or PC, and it installs a version of the Chromium operating system, which is the open source version of, of Chrome OS. The reason why I mention this is because um, I, you know, and maybe I'm a nerd. Uh, maybe I'm a nerd, but... The, the point being that at work now, I mean, I have access to great hardware, and I keep going back to my desktop computer, which is an eight-year-old workstation. It happens to have a nice advanced chip in it and 16 gigabytes of RAM, but it's something that you could buy for $100 on eBay, right? We're talking about cheap old workstations that have powerful chips for 2010, not so powerful for 2018, but I've stuck three monitors on my workstation and have installed the home version of Cloud Ready on it. And it is easily my preferred uh, 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 work computer. And um, for those districts that have low resources that um, uh, are, are, have access to free or cheap used hardware, for example, in the state of Montana, all uh, recycled hardware from state agencies goes to a warehouse where it's then available to schools. I cannot believe how fast and useful cloud ready is. Now, if you're using it at school, you should buy a license 
So you can manage it in, you know, your Chrome, um, uh, your uh, Chrome management system. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be listening to a presentation from a principal in Montana, and she was kind of bemoaning the fact that, um, you know, they're, they're, that even for administrators, they were using, you know, used hardware from the state was her daily carry uh, 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 of a laptop. And it was a big kind of clunky laptop from five or six years ago. But I was watching this laptop choke on Windows 7, and uh, it was slow and, and not particularly useful. Well, I've taken, you know, uh, well, a, a nine-year-old laptop that was a high-end laptop nine years ago that I purchased for well under $100 to test Chrome Ready. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Cloud Ready on, on eBay. And it ran snappily enough to where I could use it uh, as a power user myself. So if you haven't given it a shot yet, uh, you take an old PC, take an old Mac, um, go to your state if you've got the opportunity to to get corporate donations for hardware. Test this out once or twice, and if you can look past the fact, some people can't get around the fact that the Chrome OS is 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 in, uh, perceived to be tough to use for some. But if you're buying Chromebooks anyways, give this a shot. It's just really an amazing platform, and I can be productive on it. Anyone can be productive on it. How old with the processor would you go back? Like, what's the oldest uh, Intel processor you, you'd use with it? Um, I would say that if it's assuming it's one of the um, the uh, uh, N case Core Two Duos, so 2009 ish would be a legit uh, use. And then uh, I would say anything that's got an I in front of it, i3, i5, i7, going back to the earliest of those processors. I have tried myself to um, uh, well, in fact, it was a it was an early i5 uh, laptop we had sitting in the office, and this thing was not a speedy one by any stretch of the imagination. It was slow when it was donated to us in in 2010, and I've used that as um, uh, you know I wouldn't say I was a daily driver because I probably used it for a couple of hours and and just to see how it worked. But you know, you can get away with quite a lot, and you know there especially if you're in an area where there's a corporation that's regularly looking to give technology. F- to schools, there's a decent chance that you might get laptops that are, that are two, three, four years old. And those business laptops, the really hardy business laptops, are kind of built to be fast. Throw a cheap SSD drive in there, you can get you can get, get a tiny one that's used, lots of them for, for next to nothing, and it makes a perfectly acceptable workstation that I think you can really do anything on. So cloud ready, cloud ready, cloud ready, cloud ready, cloud ready. Awesome. Okay, well, Wes, where can we find you out on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter and speedofcreativity.org, and I have rebooted my little newsletter and little video library, and I'm starting to uh, starting to do a, a Sunday newsletter as well as a screencast that I'm uh, publishing out on playingwithmedia.com. So those are some new places I'm publishing in recent weeks. Excellent. And I am at Tech Savvy Teach um, on Twitter. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, where I am the Tech Savvy Teacher in Residence. Actually, I'm the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. My buddy Mike is the Tech Savvy Teacher. Um, We have uh, new initiatives rolling out, and we're going to be refurbishing our YouTube channel. So look out for uh, interesting tidbits and information related to tips we can offer there. Um, but when Wes and I are not tweeting, videoing, newslettering, we like to do this podcast, which is the EdTech Situation, where we are here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 a.m. Mountain Time, 3 a.m. UTC. And if you can't join us live, although, hey, please, try. Uh, we wish you would. Uh, we love to have people in the chat room. 
sometimes you bring people into the episode to chat live in our Google Hangout. If that's not your thing, that's fine. You can just go to our website, edtechsr.com, download a tiny, tiny audio file of it. Uh, you can see all the links we've posted to our website. And, of course, you can find our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Uh, we and next week we will probably be a, an hour early. Yeah, so, good, pretty yeah, decent chance we'll time. be yeah, pretty decent chance we'll be at 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time, and of course that gives Wes the opportunity to go to bed at a decent hour. So um, that uh, I, I always kind of feel bad that uh, uh, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you process the podcast after we're done. I, I switch that. I'm, I'm processing in the morning, so right, yeah, right. it's all good. It's all good. So uh, we love it when you stop by, and, and we're, we're happy to have uh, viewers tell your friends, tell your EdTech friends about the podcast. Leave us a review in iTunes. Leave us a review in Stitcher. helps more people find the podcast, and we appreciate uh, you listening or viewing. Thank you, and good night.